Well, that song and the scripture it's taken from, Deuteronomy 6, uh, speak of that great exuberant praise that we have for the Lord. And uh, while I'll be teaching from Psalm 47, we'll begin reading there. So turn with me to Psalm 47, then I'll read those verses from Deuteronomy 6. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king for all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Salah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. And Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to come before your people. Uh, you are deserving of our love, and may we be people that give you true love today. May we show that love in abundant praise with our whole heart, soul, and strength. I ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to take what otherwise would be my mere and powerless words, what otherwise would be the congregation's dumb and deaf ears, and otherwise would be our unworthy praise, to take them and make my words words of life, to open all of our ears, and to take our praise and to elevate it up to your throne as a pleasing offering before you. For by faith and in Christ, you are well pleased with our praise. And this I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. I grew up in Southern California. When I was 11 years old, the Olympics came to Los Angeles, and it was a pretty significant regional event. Uh, the city just south of us, the cycling races were down the main streets. Uh, the aquatics complex at my high school hosted the diving competition, so you can see how it really uh, brought things home. It was a, a fun time. And I had played soccer from a young age, and my dad was able to get three tickets to the final match, the gold medal match for men's soccer, one for my brother, one for myself, and one for him. So we were excited. And this was months before we even knew who was going to be playing. But the fact that we'd go to the Rose Bowl, sit with 100,000 fans, and get to cheer for whoever, uh, we were excited about. Uh, lo and behold, as the date approached, it turned out it was going to be France and Brazil, and we didn't have too much affinity for either. But I clearly remember sitting out on the patio at my parents' house with spray paint and sheets of cardboard making placards uh, for both teams, kind of cover our bases, in case we <laughs> got seated in a, you know, a ravent uh, fan base of France or of Brazil. We wanted to be prepared, because anybody who follows international sports knows you don't want to be caught unprepared among uh, European soccer fans. Um, so we came prepared, and uh, we were seated, I think it was among a mildly Brazilian crowd, um, but it wasn't dogmatically one way or the other. But we really weren't that passionate about either team. I have to be honest. It was a neat time to be there. This was the Olympics. It was uh, the gold medal round, and uh, we were 11, so this was pretty awe-inspiring. But uh, we weren't passionate about other team, either team. And that obviously affected our praise for the teams because we didn't really get that much into it. That, coupled with our shyness, uh, meant that we weren't big cheers. We had our placards and held them up at the right time, as our neighbors did, but we weren't that passionate about it. Um, fast forward then, what, 15 years later, when I became a Christian, I really clearly remember being very shy in worship. 
Um, maybe I sat in the back row or off to the side and didn't raise my hands and sing too loud and things like that. And it was a, a personality carryover. Uh, it wasn't a, a lack of caring carryover because I was firmly in the Lord's camp. I was certainly on his side. That's who I was cheering for. But I have to admit, I did not express it much in worship. I was shy and my shyness and probably ignorance kept me from fully entering into proper praise for God. And I see that now because if I say, uh, per Deuteronomy 6 there, if we're to love the Lord uh, with our whole soul, our whole mind, and with our whole strength, uh, but we're not doing that, I was not doing that as scripture commands here in Psalm 47, then I was either being ignorant and or being uh, a hypocrite, not doing what scripture commands that I'm supposed to do. And I grant that we're all learning and growing, and I grant myself some leeway back then and and continue to now. We need to grant grace and grant you all leeway as well uh, in the ignorance area. But uh, there's a whole chapter in the Gospel of Matthew that pronounces a series of woes onto hypocrites. So that is to be taken all the more seriously. So today, um, I come with two things, information and admonition. The information, hence uh, we become educated and overcome our ignorance as to how to, or potential ignorance, I should say, not to lump everybody in, potential ignorance, overcome that in order to uh, worship the Lord rightly. And then admonition for those of us who might be being hypocritical. We know what we're supposed to be doing, and for other factors, we're not doing it. So we need uh, correction in both areas. And trust that you all will be Bereans to review what I say according to Scripture and make sure that it is right, uh, cling to what is right, and discard what isn't, and let me know so I can correct myself. Uh, First, I think I need to distinguish between praise and worship. I admit that I started this whole idea uh, with the word praise. I thought it made a nice alliteration with my topic word two weeks ago, prayer, and I thought it might make good material for an acrostic. Uh, But then I started thinking, well, wait, do I really mean worship? But I think it's a distinction a lot of us miss. We we speak of, oh, I'm going to worship on Sunday. Oh, this is a worship program that is on the nice paper that needs to be folded every Sunday. Uh, But we speak of praise choruses. So are these the same thing? Is it just a little English uh, confusion of synonyms? And I think if we look at scripture, there is a difference. So on your outlines there, gave you a list of words that are used in Old and New Testament. And to summarize, uh, looking at the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament usage, praise means to shout, to extol, to sing with musical instruments, and to honor, whereas uh, to worship means to pay homage, bow down, serve, or be in awe. As one author I found states it, he said, praise is an upward explosion of energetic expression to God, whereas worship takes an opposite direction. It involves a downward, reverent submission. He continued, one is dancing while the other is bowing. One is shouting while the other is kneeling. One can be raucous while the other is silent. One is leaping while the other is prostration. One is exulting, the other debasing. One is rejoicing, the other is trembling. And um, so you can see that there are uh, distinctions, uh, but there's at least one similarity before I get to those distinctions. Both have that sense of coming before the Lord, of respect for him, and of extolling and honoring. So those are definitely insimilar. Uh, We extol God when we worship, we extol him in our praise, but we go about doing that differently. And that's where the distinctions come in. It's a quote from Genesis 25:42. It's when it reads, "When Abraham's servant heard their words, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth." Uh, in Psalm 138, which I initially was going to uh, preach from today, but changed my mind. Sorry for the confusion from the midweek email. But in Psalm 138, verse 2, it says, "I will worship toward your holy temple," which in the song we sung today, the first one was taken from Psalm 138, and that worship toward your holy temple was translated toward your holy temple, Lord, I bow. So that is the the word there for worship is to bow down. 
and hence we sang it that way. So we contrast that downward motion with in Psalm 47 here, verse 1, Oh, clap your hands, all you people, shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. Obviously, that's a different thing than what is going on, either the Genesis verse or Psalm 138 or uh, hundreds of other cases of worship. And I think it's no accident that the distinction is drawn on how our bodies are, are, are postured. It's very natural for a downward um, posture to engender humility and, and prostration before an ultimately higher power than we are. And also, it's no accident that an upward posture is standing upright, lifting hands to the Lord as a posture of praise, of coming before him in gladness and rejoicing. So our posture does make a difference, and which leads to a major point I want to make here, because we really do need to be careful to not fall into that Greek pagan trap that says that anything having to do with the body is inherently evil. Yes, uh, the carnal body is evil, but a redeemed body is holy. A, a carnal mind is evil, but a redeemed mind is holy. A, um, uh, all those things when renewed, our souls, that was the third thing I was going to say, a carnal soul is uh, evil, but a redeemed soul is holy. So if we're to worship with our minds, our bodies, and our strength, our souls, uh, we need to do so knowing that we are redeemed and we don't have to be uh, excessively humble. And that was a point I made two weeks ago in prayer. So we come to him as redeemed people with redeemed bodies, worshiping him in that totality of who we are as being in Christ. And here, unfortunately, is a place where a tradition, I think, infringes on what Scripture would say to us. Uh, two weeks ago when I taught on prayer, I alluded to the impact of posture on prayer. You recall, I was somewhat joking, and I said, it's a bad idea to, to, to pray in bed. You're just going to fall asleep. Well, that posture engenders a laziness, and you know, who's going to stay awake when it's dark outside, and you just woke up, and you're still tired, and so it's a bad idea to stay there for prayer. Well, uh, the same thing uh, goes uh, for another posture I think we take much more for granted, and as I challenge you to find a place in Scripture where it commands that we close our eyes or bow our heads. So do, have we brought a tradition, just sort of cultural practice, and something, a grant that we, we teach our kids, if not explicitly by example, oh, bow your heads, close your eyes, time to pray. Um, that's not necessarily what Scripture says. Even the habit of sitting uh, is the vast, vast minority of prayer positions. The one real clear example of sitting for prayer is in uh, David in 2 Samuel 7, and uh, it says he went in a uh, private chamber. This is even a private prayer not a public prayer, and he sat down. So perhaps that is sitting, though some interpreters I found said that that was kneeling and then sitting back on his feet. So perhaps even that example isn't sitting. So it's something for us to think about as to whether even sitting in a chair is a proper position for prayer. And let me read to you a passage here from the General Assembly of Presbyterian Church of the USA in 1849. Uh, their declaration, they said, the posture of standing in public prayer and that of kneeling in private prayer are indicated by examples in Scripture and in the general practice of the ancient Christian church. The posture of sitting in public is nowhere mentioned and by no usage, i.e. in Scripture allowed, but on the contrary, was universally regarded by the early church as heathenish and irreverent and is still in the customs of modern and Western nations an attitude obviously wanting in the due expression of reverence. Therefore, they recommend that pastors are to intervene and correct people on doing this. Uh, so there's numerous postures that are recommended for prayer, and there's little stick figures I got off an internet drawing there at the bottom of your outline. Um, so I, I'm not here to lecture on the posture for prayer. Pardon me for sort of catching up on what I did two weeks ago. But just as there are proper postures for prayer and things that I think are not uh, clearly stated for us to do, there are also uh, proper postures for worship. And in our text, 
Uh, the clearest example of this is in verses 1 and 6. Obviously, clapping the hands uh, uses that body part of our hands, while singing and shouting use our voice. Uh, these verses are exceedingly clear that we need to use our bodies in worship. There can be no confusion there. Uh, further, they're not to be used uh, faint-heartedly, unlike me at the Olympic match or as a, a shy little kid uh, when I used to go to church or even when I was 28. I no excuse there. I wasn't a little kid anymore. Uh, shy in church once I got saved. We're not to do so uh, bashfully. We're to clap. Uh, beautiful job today. It's exciting to sit in the front row. And uh, I have to admit, by choice, I don't necessarily sit in the front row. Um, but I do because I have to access the pulpit quickly. But it's wonderful to be up here and hear all of your voices behind me as well as all the clapping behind coming forward. So that was a beautiful job today. So we clap, we shout, and we sing. And uh, for an example of the clapping, think of the contrast between the applause that just shakes a building when people are really excited, perhaps at a concert or a political rally. Contrast that with that you know, prim and proper prayer of the Queen of England at the opera or something. You know, there's a very different how much you're involved with expressing your emotions between those two things. Uh, also think of, and I put this picture up here on your outline, of a Cornhusker fan um, <laughs> because one of the words, uh, and it's the first one there, uh, in section A on your outlines, praise equals shout, halal, that's a Hebrew word. One uh, shade of meaning for that means to clamor foolishly. So think of this uh, fan at a Cornhusker game because fan, of course, comes from, is shortened from the word fanatic. So he is a fanatic. And um, so think of that clamorously, clamoring foolishly that uh, really committed uh, athletic team fans, fanatics, do at these games. And then think of how much more, and this happens you know, every Sunday for a home game at Memorial Stadium and countless of other arenas around the country every uh, time there's a football or basketball game. So contrast that with what we should be doing before the sovereign king of the universe. You know, who knows what's going to happen with the football game or the team might do poorly. It doesn't really matter who remembers who won the Super Bowl last year. right? That's the proverbial example. Who really cares? But God is still on his throne as a very, that's the reason. Uh, sorry, I skipped a paragraph. But that's the whole conclusion of the psalmist is to say, praise, shout loudly because he's the king of the universe. The football team isn't. The Lord of the universe is. And that's who we praise. So indeed, moving then on to verses 2 and 3, it's repeated in 7 and 8, clearly making it a high priority. The sole reason given here why we are to praise the Lord so exuberantly is because he is a great king over all the earth, as it reads in verse 2. Um, and looking at those parts of it, over all the earth, indicating his uh, authority is universal. There is no part of the earth that is not under his authority. Uh, the, the, uh, so a theme verse for our church was on the cover of your worship program, Psalm 72, verse 8, says that uh, his authority, his dominion is being spread over the earth just as the water covers the sea. Is there any part of the sea that is not covered by water? Uh, all of the sea is covered by water, just as God's authority covers all of the earth. Further, when it says there in the next clause, will subdue the nations, the authority, his authority over the earth is active. He is progressively subduing it, exerting his authority over all the earth. Uh, he is currently subduing all the nations. All nations are being put under the foot of Jesus. Uh, we, as his ambassadors, are emissaries in carrying out this task, and hence the nations are being put under our feet. Um, and so clearly we are active in the subduing um, Endeavor, this dominion task, God's authority is universal, and by virtue of us being in Christ, uh, being his brothers, adopted into his family, as we've spoken on other occasions, we are carrying out that task of subduing the nations, of them being put under our feet. 
Uh, so we do not also give praise to an absentee God. You know, it's really easy when you're at a sporting event. The team's right there in front of you. You see the play happen. You, you give your shout, your yell, your applause. Well, here, you know, perhaps the reason it can be hard to enter into it is because we don't see God uh, present before us. You know, we look up at the screen. We, we thankfully don't have any you know, pictorial reminders uh, lest we fall into worshiping them instead of the true God. Uh, so we need to remind ourselves of the promise that God is with us. The Comforter is with us. The Holy Spirit, he is with us. And uh, we are, just by virtue of God's omniscience and omnipotence, always uh, being watched and cared for and seen by God. So just because we don't see him tangibly with our eyes every moment, just like we see uh, the football team when we're watching from the stands or on TV, uh, he sees us, and we should be more conscious of his presence. Moving on to verse 4, following this beautiful declaration in the preceding verses of God's authority, and I see that really as an application of God's sovereignty. We see another application that the psalmist makes about sovereignty, and this relates to uh, God's wisdom and his will and providence. Uh, Verse 4 says, He will choose our inheritance for us, for the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. So recall that the Israelites, they did not choose the promised land. They didn't uh, send out scouts and say, oh, it's got a good port over there, and it's got access down to the Gulf, and this is a really key land. They were sent there. They were told to go there. God in his providence brought them there. Even once they were brought to it, um, they were quite unable to subdue it without his uh, power and his accompanying strength, his accompanying presence. Uh, They tried to do it without it, and they utterly failed. So even their success in taking possession of the land he had brought them to was dependent on his uh, providence in uh, superintending those battles. Uh, Once they had uh, subdued the land, the division of it among the tribes was not uh, according to their own scheme. They drew lots, and the the lots were not random chance. They were determined by God's providence. And I I have to admit, I can imagine the, the Asher tribe upon the uh, or say, say one of the interior tribes saying, oh, it's not fair. You know, Asher gets the coastland. I really like the beach, and we're stuck here in the mountains, and it says in the text that the mountains were full of trees, and we're going to have to go down there and cut out the tr- up there and cut out the trees. That's just not fair. Um, but I don't see that complaining. They, they trusted God's providence, and they entered into it. I mean, there certainly were tasks to be done on the coast, uh, different weather patterns. Each place has a challenge. So just like they, uh, at every step of the way, were led by God's providence, and his power and humbled when they didn't, uh, we too need to trust in uh, his providence as a a vehicle for our praise. It would be very easy if everything always went so smoothly to not need to offer God a glad thanksgiving for when things do go well. It's really easy to take things for granted. Um, So no doubt the Israelites there, after losing a battle they attempted to do in their own strength, that humbled them. That made them all the more praising of God when they did have the victory and uh, ultimately possessed the land. So as the verse that put there, Romans 8:28, classic statement of how all things work to good. Whether you're on the coastland, whether you're in the mountains, whether you're in Omaha, whether you're getting transferred somewhere else, whether you live in a small house, big house, have the job you like to have or, or haven't gotten one the wi- that you wish, uh, in all circumstances, uh, we know that things work together for God and uh, we need to trust him for that. Um, and indeed it is, uh, by faith that we trust his wisdom. You know, the carnal mind is at enmity with God. That's because it doesn't know the wisdom. What sense is there to the world when you don't think God's thoughts? But we, knowing his revealed will and knowing that he desires to good, give good gifts to us, that's uh, by entering into that in faith when we can truly 
offer up good praise to him. Romans 14.23 says that what is not of faith is of sin. So apart from our faith, uh, good true faith, uh, our praise is sin. Uh, with faith, we claim the declaration of Psalm 33, verse 1. Praise from the upright is beautiful. So by being in Christ, by having that true faith, that praise is beautiful. And we must not rely also. It's a caution. We must not, must not rely on outward appearances. Just because we do these outward actions with different parts of our body, that's not the ooh, free and clear. That makes a good praise. Because in Isaiah 1, 13, 17, there's a very strict condemnation of just doing the outward things and having your heart distant from God. Um, so it's possible to err in the opposite direction of having uh, an untrue heart motive while doing those outward actions. Um, and taking a look at, oh, at those uh, outward actions, is part D of your outline, use of body in praise, uh, thinking about how we use the mouth both in shouting and in speaking and seek, uh, singing and declaring. We use our hands in clapping. Uh, we raise them. We stand. We dance. Oh, caution about dancing. Priel fell off the chair there during the song. That I was one of her whales, so you need to be careful about these things. Um, but the example of mouth, shouting. Um, one author I read uh, spoke of the amen. You think of the, at the end of a prayer, we're all supposed to say amen together. That was a collective shout. Um, you know, Mr. Butler, when he used to be with us, often during a sermon, a point he agreed with would be this hearty amen, really expressing, I agree with it. So you're not supposed to yell in the middle of a sermon, blah, but to yell, amen, I agree. And that is a, a declaration with your mouth. There you go. You guys are on it. Thank you. And uh, just so you know, it was entirely providential that the songs were chosen today for the topic. So the fact that we had those resounding courses leading into uh, this exhortation, uh, God planned that, not me. Um, other ones under Part D, uh, with our hands obviously clapping, raising. Uh, the posture there, number one at the bottom, uh, is an expression of just lifting up. And, uh, another author, author I read spoke of just that inherent um, an aspect of uh, image of God, general revelation, how a child you know, naturally reaches up to be picked up, right? Isn't that exp uh, an aspect of what we're doing when we raise our hands and worship God? You are here for me. Bring me up to you. Do you accept uh, me? I know you do in Christ. And so that um, lifting hands action can express many things. So you can run through those verses in part D at your leisure. Well, uh, granting that uh, he is the reigning king, he is sovereign, that we need to uh, accept his precepts as revealed in scripture and we need to or implement them, uh, another aspect of that relates to instruments in verse 5 where it says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Uh, and as I understand it, this victorious action of God either accompanies a trumpet or is like a trumpet. But either way, praise is related to musical instruments. And uh, Psalm 150, I want to read for you verses 3 through 5, is very clear on this. It says, Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with a timbrel and dance. Praise him with the stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. It's impossible to get away from the fact that those verses uh, commend using instruments in uh, praise of God. I almost slipped up and said worship. That too, but uh, here we're speaking of praise. So it's perfectly fitting that these uh, instruments are used in the praise of God. And notice that the mood of the instruments, hence I wrote there in your outlines, mood, music mimics mood. The music it has this whole feeling of rejoicing, which is what praise is. Uh, you notice, uh, especially today I picked up on it, 
but that the tone of the music reflects these different aspects of our worship service, to use our common usage. Um, just so you know, the confusion about Juliana starting to play piano there was because I moved that. When I reviewed midweek uh, that song written by Martin Luther, I was like, you know, it really starts with a reflective confession, so the prayer of confession should be for it, not after it. And I forgot to notify the musicians. That was my fault. But it ended resoundingly, right, as it triumphed with God, uh, Christ's grace into our lives and moved into the grace of the Lord's table, and it began with that reflective um, uh, confession. So uh, music does mimic mood, and we try to structure our worship service to reflect those different proper moods and the proper instru instrumentation and tone that accompanies it. Moving on to verse 6. Uh, again, speaking of singing, four times uh, in this one verse, clearly singing praise is critical. It would be tiresome of me, and it would fill up all the outline uh, to list all the verses that commend singing and praise. You cannot praise God without singing. Uh, previously, I mentioned that the singing needs to be wholehearted. Uh, it's not muttering or whispering, just the same that clapping for God isn't this. It's a real clap, like we were doing today. If the singing isn't wholehearted, and I do want to read a scripture or two to, to confirm that we should do that, and hence it's not truly passionately vocal, I would say that it's not truly praising God. I don't think you, unless you've got a voice impairment, grant that. God has given what you have and you do the best with what you have. But if you're not really singing a loud praise, I don't think you're really praising God. So uh, I'll leave you to ponder that. But let me read uh, Psalm 9-1. Just for some proof here that the singing is critical and it needs to be exuberant. Psalm 9-1. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. So your whole heart, not a part, uh, not the part that's paying attention, not the part that feels uh, carnally excited that day, but with your whole heart. Um, and also uh, Psalm 111-1, uh, 138-1, all of those speak of the totality of our heart, truly expressing that to God. A, a partway gift is not acceptable. We need to give all. So... Uh, notice again at the end of this verse, verse 6, that the psalmist gives us the reason why we sing these exuberant praises, and that's because he is king over all the earth. Do we need another reason, as if uh, there's a backup reason that would make us all the more excited? That's a good enough reason enough. He is king of all the earth. And our final verse then, uh, verse 9, having already covered 8 previously, uh, we see that... Uh, the gathering of the people is a proper context for this uh, wholehearted praise. It reads, The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham. So the object of our congregational praise, that gathering together, God is the object of that congregational praise. Uh, throughout the ages and uh, across the centuries, uh, the people of God have gathered to worship the God of Abraham. Galatians 3.7 clearly says that we, entering in faith uh, as the brothers of Christ have entered into and are sons of um, Abraham. Hence, we worship Abraham's God. We don't uh, have a, sec a separate, totally distinct dispensation here. Uh, so worshiping uh, the same God that David worshipped, we worship that God in the same way that David worshipped. Uh, we sing, we shout, we stand, we raise our hands, we are reflective, all those different things. Uh, we celebrate. This is a great party to have, celebrating the re resurrection of Christ the fulfillment of all those promises that the people of Abraham and Abraham himself um, looked forward to. So uh, we celebrate that through all the things that David did. 
Uh, secondly, in this section, uh, he is the provider of the congregation's protection. The shields of the earth belong to God. The princes mentioned in the first part of this verse refer to the leaders of the people. And in the middle part of the verse, it speaks of the shields of the earth, these being the protectors, because civil government, the purpose for it is to be a protector for the righteous, uh, that being God's people. So here even the princes, uh, the civil government, are praising God and uh, they should be protecting his people. And note that these princes, these shields of the people, are God's. They belong to God. A perfect confirmation of Romans 13.1 that the ministers are appointed by God. He owns them. And a beautiful prayer given earlier by Scott appreciated that. That's been my prayer for weeks. That whoever would win, uh, that's not already a Christian, would become one. How ironic would be would that be if all these liberals out there who voted for particular candidates just got that, that God-hater ripped out of their hands by a conversion? That would be beautiful. And uh, certainly, amen. Certainly God rules uh, in, the lo- in the hearts of men and is capable of doing it and it should be our steadfast prayer. Well, another statement here of the Lord's authority over all the earth and everything that dwells in it is the final clause and a fitting conclusion that he is exalted. And may he be exalted in our praises, in every aspect of our lives, in our prayers as I covered two weeks ago and uh, added more to today, in our uh, labors throughout the week, uh, in our singing, in our raising hands, whatever it is, however we express it according to his will, may he be exalted in our lives. And uh, there's no better way to, um, to complete this statement than that he would be exalted uh, through his people, that the sacrifice of Christ would not be in vain, that us individually, uh, purchased at the price of his blood, would sing his praises with our whole hearts, and may we praise him with our whole bodies. Let's pray. Stand to pray, please. Father in heaven, through the merit of Christ uh, and your mercy uh, bestowed on us through faith in him, we come boldly to your throne. We do so in prayer and in praise. Please, O God, may we do so rightly. May all of our labors, all the things you will in us to do, conform to your truth and be empowered by your spirit. You are the sovereign God, the king of all the earth, and to you we offer our praise. We love you. We praise you. We do so with all our hearts, all our souls, and all our strength, with our whole being, Lord, our mind and our body included. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.